Hello and welcome to a time of edification with Caruso Ministry. Get ready to be edified and equipped to edify others. Ready? Let's begin. Open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, and I'll be reading from I'll be reading from verse 18. Ephesians 6 from verse 18. He says, praying always God praying and supplication in the spirit, and watching the answer of perseverance and supplication for all sins. And for me, that all trans will be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. I'm going to read verse 19 again. He says, And for me, that pray also for me, that all trans will be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Hallelujah. But then I see boldly as I have to speak. Look at um, 2 Thessalonians 3. 2 Thessalonians 3, um, from verse 1 to 2. It says, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified, even as it is written. She that we may be delivered from wicked and unreasonable men, for all men have not faith. Look at Colossians 4. Colossians chapter 4. I'm reading from verse 2. Continue in prayer and watching the scene with thanksgiving, with all praying also for us, that God would open unto us a dove utterance or a dove for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in bonds, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. And lastly, look at Romans chapter 15. Romans 15. Romans chapter 15 from verse 30 to 31. Romans 15 from the 30 to 31. Are we there? Romans 15, 30 to 31. It says, Now I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake and for the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from them that do not believe in Judea, and that my service, which I have for Jerusalem, may be accepted of the saints. And I may come unto you with joy by the will of God, and may with you be refreshed. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Hallelujah. Glory to Jesus. Um, let me start off by saying that, you see, um, one key thing that must be a part of your prayer life as a student of the word, or right, as one who is being trained in God's word, is that you must be very serious about praying for those who bless you with God's word. Those who bless you with God's word. See, um, uh, you see, <laughs> the work of ministry is, is quite tasking. Right? It's quite tasking. Yeah, quite tasking. All right. And so, um, when a lot of times when you when you read through scriptures, you know, w- the truth is, when I began to study on prayer, I couldn't really understand why Paul was so insistent on saying pray for us. Because don't forget, this same Paul in First Corinthians fourteen and verse eighteen says i pray in tongues more than you want all right so i mean that's definitely a man that was giving so much to prayer he was giving so much to prayer for example he will say i cease not to give thanks for you making mention of in my prayers so it gives you a kind of idea of the way this man was giving to prayer yet he would still tell the church i would tell the people and he would say pray for us pray for us what i let you know is that at the end of the day for the minister of the gospel, prayer is pivotal. Very pivotal prayer. Very pivotal. All right. And so it's it's an instruction to, from the epistles to pray for people that teach you God's word. Pray for them. All right. Pray for them. Okay. You know, there are things that sometimes you can see people do very easily. But you might not realize how much of a stress it actually is. For example, to be honest, to teach for us two weekends in a row. Is it exactly the easiest thing to do? All right. It's not exactly the easiest thing to do. And then, of course, you know, we have our discipleship meetings as well. Right. I do my best possible to ensure that, you know, nothing, you know, affects it or stuff like that. So, aside, you know, on Saturday, you know, show up in church because you have to serve on Sunday morning and then in the evening come back like this to hear God's word. All right. And I mean, it's not just we gathering together and then just saying anything, but rather, the teaching of God's word in its accuracy, all right? The reality of it is that those things have a tool, all right? And while, of course, the work is being done supernaturally, 
the reality of it is that there are, <laughs> your body's going to feel it. All right. Certain things in your life, you feel it. You, know, like you have to prepare for these meetings. You have to take time out to pray. You have to take time out to study, etc., etc. So certain things will feel. And so when you understand, when you see those rigors of the work of ministry face to face, all right, then you understand why Paul had to say a lot of pray for us. <laughs> it makes a lot of sense that he said pray for us. All right. If I really want to employ you, all right, I want to employ you that you know pray for people who bless you with God's word. All right, so you know, you know for folks who have the pastors, pray for your pastor. Very importantly, pray for me as well. All right, pray for me. All right, as, as you're getting blessed, give of the truth, you're getting blessed. Give of the truth, you know, you are being enabled to work in God's plan for your life, and so on and so forth. All right, pray, pray, just pray for me. All right, pray for people who bless you with God's word. It's very important. In fact, take out time. All right, if you, if you will, take out time once a week, twice a week. You know, three times a week, so on and so forth, and just decide by this time, this time to this time, I'm going to spend time praying for this person or for this person. Actually, it's very, very important. Okay, it's very, very important. So, please do what you pray. All right, so I just want to say that. Let me show you something that's even very interesting that I, I, I noticed. Look at Ephesians still, look at the book of Ephesians, and this, this might <laughs> this might actually be a bit shocking. Look at Ephesians, we'll start from verse 12, actually. Ephesians 6 from verse 12, and we'll read all the way to verse 19. Look at what he says. He says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. He says, Wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day, having done all to stand. So he's talking about the armor of God now. He says, Stand therefore, having your lungs got about with truth. Now, I've explained before, I, I, I can't remember the teaching exactly where I did this, but I know there was a teaching where I actually really explained what he meant by, no, I think it was in my series on the book of Ephesians. Explain what he meant by the whole armor of God, and that when you see these things spoken about, they are not things that you have to, of course, carry physically. There's no such thing as a shield of faith, like a physical shield, or you know, a breastplate of righteousness. No, rather, these are things that the believer has to be conscious of. All right, so when he says the breastplate of righteousness, the believer has to be has to have a righteousness consciousness as he goes about doing these things. All right, when he talks about the shield of faith, it means the believer has to stand in faith. All right, well, let's continue. So he says. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day, having done all to stand. So stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the blessed breastplate of righteousness, and your feet, and your feet, sorry, shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Ab above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fury that of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation, and the word, and the sword of the spirit, or the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, continue, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. So, in other words, in your mindset concerning the entire armor of God or concerning the whole armor of God, all of these things he has listed go together with prayer. So listen to me. The armor of God is not the armor of God without prayer. Simply what it is. The armor of God is not the armor of God without prayer. You cannot talk about the armor of God and not speak about prayer because do not forget the, 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 the context of this is warfare against the devil. And I've explained to you before how that warfare is fundamentally a bit of knowledge. Warfare is not village people. In fact, I dare say to engage with warfare consistently with village people oftentimes is a reflection of the fact that you really don't know what the warfare is. The warfare is not the village people. The warfare is your mindset or your perspective about your authority or the believer's authority over village people. If you understand that the believer is seated far above principalities and powers, and I'm, I'm not saying just understand it in your head, but rather that you have a full comprehension of that reality and it gets a hold and a grip of your heart as a revelation. You would understand that those village people don't mean anything. So, in fact, the fact that you are constantly in a battle with village people is oftentimes proof that you actually are in warfare. Or better still, you are in a warfare that you are not even aware of. And that's the reason you've been battling with them a lot. <laughs> all right. But then that being said, you notice that in him mentioning the armor of God, all right, or particularly the armor of God as it has to do with you know withstanding the devil, he speaks about the, the sword of the spirit, which is the shield of faith, and then he continues with prayer. He continues to prayer, but very importantly, and this is where you can easily miss it. It's not just prayer he talks about. Look at specifically the kind of prayer he speaks about. He says, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirits, and watching generously with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. So this prayer he's speaking about here isn't just fundamentally a prayer for yourself, because you can come from the perspective of oh, the shield, the, the entire armor of God is something I have to pick on by myself. 
Are you with me? But then, in Paul speaking about prayer, as it has to do with the armor of God, it gives you a perspective of prayer that is towards intercession. So it tells you, watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And then in continuing in line with that, it now says, and for me, that all chance will be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mission of the gospel. First of all, this makes sense because, as we said before, warfare is fundamentally a thing of the mind. It's as regards the preaching of the gospel. That, the pre- that, that God's word, you know, is thought as it should, all right? That God's word, we said that warfare primarily has to do with the minds of people. And of course, the only thing that can, when it comes to battling for the minds of people, or when it comes to trying to snatch, you know, people's minds from ideologies and age-long beliefs that the devil has waged against, you do that by the teaching of God's word. You don't do that by prayer. You don't. You don't correct false ideologies and notions by prayer. You don't do that. All right. You do that rather by the teaching of God's word. You teach God's word. All right. Just like the way you don't pray for people's for the unbelievers' mind who is darkened to, to come to light. You don't pray. It. Do you understand? You go to preach. So your prayer is that your your prayer is that you're effective in preaching. All right. So for example, when Paul says that if our gospel be hid, in Second Corinthians 4 from verse 3 to 4, if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them who are without or who are lost. He says, In whom um, who, whose eyes the God of this world has blinded, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, which is the image of God, should shine on them. Now, what he is not saying there is that what you should now do is that you should now go and pray for those people. Because he now goes to verse 5 and say, For we preach not ourselves. Can you see that? So the response to the eyes of the unbelievers being darkened or being blinded by the devil is not prayer. It is our preaching. So he says, we preach unto ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves servants for your sakes. So the response to the fact that people are blinded in their hearts is that we go to teach them God's word. But is this saying that prayer is not important? No, I can't say that. But rather, the point of prayer is for you to be effective as you go out to preach. So the point of prayer, you don't pray. So you don't pray, for example, for someone who was blind to no longer be blind. And, and this is not the miracle also, just to be clear. This is as regards the preaching of the, as regards being blind in terms of being an unbeliever, not receiving the gospel. The unbeliever will become a believer that by the preaching of the gospel. But your prayer is to ensure that in your preaching, you are effective. Notice that Paul, at any point in time, never said, pray for us that unbelievers will become saved. Or at least pray for us that, Unbelievers become believers. He never did that. Rather, pray for us that through us the word of the Lord will have a free course. Pray for us that we will have utterance to speak God's word boldly, that we will declare God's word as we should. Pray for us that the door of utterance is open unto us. Can you see that? So the prayer, in fact, when you are praying as regards unbelievers getting saved, should be directed towards the minister. Because the prayer is should be that the minister is bold enough to declare God's word as he should. Because when he does that, the unbeliever will hear God's word. All right, God's word will produce faith in his heart and then he's going to become saved. So that's the mindset you must have. So back to Ephesians 6 now. Having seen that the warfare against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness of this world and you know, spiritual wickedness in high places is fundamentally of the mind, all right? It's fighting about the mind of people. Then you will understand that the shield, when we talk about the whole armor of God, the whole armor of God is not something that you do. Um, let me see. It's not something that you do outside the work of ministry. Rather, in fact, when you talk about the whole armor of God, which you said goes in line with prayer, you must reconcile in your mind that the prayer being spoken about is not a prayer that has to just do with you. That in fact, when Paul was speaking about the whole armor of God, the context of his prayer was prayer for all saints and then for ministers. So mean as you take up the whole armor of God, out of the whole armor of God that you are taking up is prayer. But this prayer is not just for yourself. It's a prayer for ministers of the gospel and as well for every saint. So it becomes an anomaly for you as a minister of the gospel or it becomes an anomaly for you as a believer when you have a prayer life that is centered around yourself. It's an anomaly. It is. It is actually. The, the much more Christian way, or better still, the way that we are seeing, that we are showing the epistles of how our prayer life should be is that our prayer life should actually be for men. Actually, you know, it's interesting that when you read through the epistles, you will not but see that Paul would tell the church, I pray this for you, but then you pray this for me. There was a reciprocity, all right, to the idea of prayer that you see consistently. So, for example, you see Paul say that, I choose not to give thanks for, them, thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayer, that this and this and this would happen. So, Paul is saying that I pray for you, all right, but then he then says, You pray for me. You hardly ever find Paul say, pray this for yourself. How do you ever find it? 
had be ever. In fact, the, the, the portion of scripture that we take as prayers for believers are places where Paul was telling them what he prayed for them about. These are the things I pray about for you. Are we together, guys? And then he would now go on to say, and the places where Paul would tell them to pray, oftentimes are not was pray for me or pray for other ministers. That's it. That's it. Even in Colossians 4 and verse 12, for example, it says, Epaphras, who is one of you, the servant of Christ salutes you. He says, always laboring fervently for you in prayer that you might stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. So he's telling them, this is what Epaphras has been praying about for you. So even with Epaphras, someone who is not the same, of course, as Paul, he's telling you, even for Epaphras, Epaphras is praying this for you. So in him even trying to show them, of course, about Epaphras' prayer life, he knew that the context or the focus of which should be Epaphras praying for you, not necessarily Epaphras praying for himself. Now, this is not to say, of course, that it's about to pray for yourself, but it's just to show you that the way it is supposed to be done according to the epistles is that you as a minister pray for others. All right? So, for example, you pray for those who are um, below you in the world. That means the use of that physiology because the Bible talks about those who are above you in the world as well. So it means that you pray for those who teach you God's word, and then you pray for those who you also teach God's word. If you are supposed to follow biblical standards, it means, in fact, their prayer is, is more priority than your prayer. You know why? Because there will be other people praying for you as well. That's the way of the church. So the way of the church really is that my prayer life is not centered around myself. My prayer life is centered around others. Because as I'm praying for them, I know that there are folks who are also praying for me. That's how it should be done. And so I just said that to just say, and I really, really want to implore you to please pray for people. All right, pray for people. Pray for your friends. I, I, I cannot say that enough. Pray for your friends. Pray for your friends. Pray, pray for your friends. It's, it's very, very important. You have probably minister friends around you you know, I have friends like that, you know, minister friends. Sometimes, you know, I just pray for them. The times when the Lord, particularly when the Lord nudges me, I wasn't planning to pray for them before, and then that person's name just comes to heart immediately. I know that there's something major I have to pray about. And so I take it very, very seriously. So I really, really want to implore you to please pray. All right, please pray. And I mean, I trust by the grace of God, all right, the remaining months of this year in Carrizo Ministry, we're going to be spending some time praying. All right, I'm going to be praying you know, quite a while, all right, this year, all right, so please and please just prepare your hearts for that, and so a lot of things are going to be doing the last intercession, right, the last intercession, praying for us, praying for um, our reach as a ministry, praying for other people, other ministries as well, praying for other ministers of the gospel, and so on and so forth, hallelujah, glory to Jesus. So, as I said, um, I'll be picking up today's series, all right, or today's teaching from where we stopped on Senses of the New Creation, all right, so we'll go as far as we can possibly go, all right, and then afterwards we can then begin our series on the book of creation. Hallelujah. All right, so um, in, in Lagos yesterday, all right, Lagos yesterday, and I want to believe that you followed up to the point where you could. Um, I know that we had some issues with the stream at some point, all right, but in Lagos yesterday, we were able to really dive into scriptures as regards, um, we we're able to cover what man is without the gospel, and then we began to lay a foundation yesterday about the um the details of the gospel or the events that brought about salvation for, for man from his sins all right we began to lay that foundation yesterday and that's really where we're going to pick up from right this evening so please open your bibles with me open your bibles with me and let's go to um let's go to ephesians 2 ephesians 2 from verse 11 Ephesians 2 from verse 11, but before I go to Ephesians 2, you know, so I was trying to explain what we, we started from teaching on the or from learning about the implication of Jesus' death on the cross. All right. And so one of the things I told them, for example, was that every event that you see, all right, as it has to do with the work of salvation that Jesus did, and by that I mean the death, the burial, and the resurrection. Everything you see there had an importance or had a significance. Particularly for someone like Jesus, where almost everything he did on the earth was prophesied about you have to see that there had to be importance in the things that he did. Bible says, for example, in the book of Hebrews, I think Hebrews 7, all right, it says, Lo, I come in the volume of the books. It is written of me to do thy will, O God. All right, when he says, I come in the volume of the books, what he's saying is, I come by the word of prophecy, meaning there are things that I'm sent to do. There are things I am doing upon the earth as a fulfillment of prophecy. And you see, Peter speaks of that same thing in 2 Peter chapter 1. All right, 2 Peter 1 from the 16 downwards. All right, having talked about the fact that, you know, we, we, we saw him on the mount, you know, having had an excellence, glory, and so on and so forth. He then goes on, I think, in verse 19 and says, however, we have the prophetic word of confirmed, or we have a more sure word of prophecy. 
which you would do well to take it as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the day star rises in your heart. It says, knowing this, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. It is for only men of God spoke for for um for men of God spoke not in old time by the will of God, by the will of men. Oh, sorry, for prophecy came not in old time, sorry, by the will of men, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And what is he trying to tell you here? He's trying to tell you that even though there were events that we see of Jesus, and there are things that we can tell you based on our experience, but listen to me. What matters more is that there is a prophetic word that has been confirmed, or meaning there are prophecies of the old testament that Jesus actually confirmed by his life on the earth which you can do well to take with or which you will do well to take with. So meaning by as you pay attention to the words of prophecy from the Old Testament, you would have a better understanding about the things that Jesus did when he was on the earth, all right? And that would give you clarity and insight. So the things that seem to be dark, all right, as concerns the activity of God, of, or, or sorry, of Jesus upon the earth, as you pay attention to the Old Testament scriptures, which are prophecies of the things that Jesus began to do, it will become clear to you why he did the things that he did. So that's why he says that which you will do well to pay him as the day dawns and the day star rises in your heart. Meaning, what does it mean when a day star should rise? Oftentimes, they're not, in fact, it's not oftentimes, the way it works, in fact, is there is night, all right? And then in the morning, as the sun begins to shine, there is a transition from darkness into clear light. Are we together? Where you can now see things clearly. So he's saying, as you pay attention to the prophetic words of the Old Testament, as you pay attention to the words in the Old Testament written about Jesus, you would have a clear insight into the things that Jesus did on the earth, such that you will move from a place of, of, of confusion, of darkness, of obscurity, all right? A place where you don't really understand the reason why Jesus did the things that he did on the earth, up until when you now begin to see clearly and begin to understand very clearly the things that Jesus did on the earth and their implications. How would these things be? By you looking into the Old Testament to, to understand or to study. Are we together, guys? All right. And I said of that to just say that so when you see the man Jesus upon the earth, you see a man who was walking in prophetic, all right, in prophetic directions. And by prophetic directions, I mean he was walking based on things that are prophesied about him in the Old Testament. That's 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 his life. All right. That's the that's the reason, or at least that's the way he did the things he did. Are we together, guys? And so what this means is that every detail or every event or every detail of events, let me put it that way, every detail of events surrounding the death, the burial, and resurrection would have an importance because it was prophesied about. And hence, you must pay attention to it. And that's really where I'm going to. You must pay attention to it. So it's not just enough to just know, oh, Jesus died on the cross. Why did he die on the cross? It's not just enough to know, oh, you know, he was, he, he died, all right? And then after he died, he was buried. And he was buried for three days. Why was he buried three days? Where was he in those three days? All right. Where was he in those three days? And then after three days, he rose from the dead. All right. In his resurrection, why why exactly did he appear to the disciples in his resurrection? And why exactly did he have to ascend to heaven? All right. And not just stay upon the earth. So on and so forth. Those details are important. They are not minute. They have a significance. Are we together, guys? All right. So look at um before, before we go to Ephesians 2 and verse 11, look at Colossians 2 and verse 14. Colossians 2 verse 14. And one of the things I was able to lay, or one of the conditions I was able to lay in Lagos yesterday is the fact that when we speak of the laws, all right, when we speak of the laws or the laws of Moses, they apply to the Jews and not to the Gentiles. Because it was the Jews that were given the law, not everyone. And this is the first way to actually explain about the reason why believers should not work according to the law. It's not even because we are in the new covenant, no. It is for the Israelites that it can matter that we are in the new covenant and not the old covenant. The reality of it is that for the Gentiles, there's no new covenant. There can't be, there's no new covenant for the Gentiles. I mean, the usage of that phrase. Because there was never an old covenant for you. Do you understand? It is the Jew. And that's the reason, if you pay attention very well, you'll find that it is actually in the book of Hebrews that you find phrases like old covenant and new covenant used. Why? Because the book of Hebrews was written to Hebrews. It was written to Jews. And so because, because of that, that, so for the Jew, they had an old covenant, which was the Lord. And then in the new, they had, of course, the new covenant in the epistles. Sorry, they had the new covenant in Christ Jesus and in the work of salvation. So it made a lot of sense to the Jews that there's an old covenant and a new covenant. But for the Gentile, for example, there was never an old covenant. God never made the covenant to the Gentile. Never. So for the Gentile, while of course you can understand that in the new covenant you pass to the work of salvation, it applies to everybody. But the reality of this is in the context of an old covenant followed by a new covenant, it really doesn't apply to the Gentile because the Gentile never had an old covenant. 
Gentile never had an old covenant. The law, which is the old covenant, was given to the Jews. Look at Romans 3. Sorry, I'm having to push you to other verses to check. But you know, I just need to explain. It just occurred to me that there are a couple of people here who probably have not heard me teach on that before. So Romans chapter 3 from verse 1 to 2. He says, what advantage then has the Jew? So let me just give you a context here. So Paul actually was teaching, was, you know, writing the book of Romans, which I believe personally that is one of the most awesome literary, literary pieces you have in scripture. I believe that probably the two most interestingly written books in the epistles are the book of Romans and the book of Hebrews. The most, in my opinion, one of the most intelligent. And the reason, the reason I say so is because those books were written as, they were written as a rebuttal. That's the way those books were written. It's as though they had things, you know when you talk about a, 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 a properly written document to counter certain issues, that's the way the book of Romans and the book of Hebrews were written. So Paul, for example, what Paul wanted to establish in the book of Romans was actually the righteousness of Christ. That's what he wanted to establish. That there's a righteousness in Christ Jesus that superimposes every other kind of righteousness. That's what he wanted to do. But so he knew for me to be able to do this, the first thing I have to do is to show them how that everybody is unrighteous. There's nobody that is righteous. <laughs> That's what he had to do first of all. So he had to show that everybody, whether Jew or Gentile, is unrighteous. And then now show the need for righteousness. To show you that you cannot attain righteousness by the works of the law. To show you that in you and in yourself, you are unable to do anything for yourself. Then now present to you the righteousness that is in Christ. All right, And now tell you to walk in the same. That was what Paul wanted to do. And that's, and that's the reason why the sum total of everything was now Romans 12 from, from verse 1, when he now says, Precede you therefore, brethren, by the message of the Lord that you present. So, having even told you about the righteousness in Christ Jesus, he now tells you to renew your heart towards those things so that you begin to walk in that righteousness. But that being said, let's go back. So, Paul starts in Romans 1, for example, and then he talks about you know, how that is a debtor to the Jew and to the Greek, how that is not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for instance, the power of God unto salvation, so on and so forth in Romans 1. He then, from verse 18, then he begins to say that the right, the, for the um, righteousness of God is revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. And then he begins to give a very interesting concept about the Gentiles. Talks about the fact that you know the Gentiles, even though they do not have a law, all right, he says from the invisible things, from the visible things of the world, the invisible things about God are clearly seen. And it is interesting that Paul said clearly seen. So meaning Paul did not give room for the fact that, oh, somebody might actually look to the world and probably think there is no God. He says it is, he says the, the invisible things about God are clearly seen from the visible things of the world. Meaning, let me say something. If you look through this world, or let me put it this way, it takes a certain level of faith to look to the world and everything you see and say there is no God. Because Paul is saying, from the things that you can see in the world, you will clearly see that there is a God. And it is, Paul is someone that pays attention to the kind of words you use. For him to have said clearly see, it means clearly see. So it means that if you ever find a man, all right, who claims that he's an atheist or he claims that there is no God or so on and so forth, despite everything he can see around, he actually is inexcusable. And actually, that's the interesting thing. Paul uses that phrase. He says, that was inexcusable, low man. In Romans 2 from verse 1. You are not excusable. There's no excuse for you. Because the things about God are clearly seen from the things you can see around you. So it takes a particular level of faith for you to see everything you see and still chose to believe that there's no God. It's not possible. It's, a, it's, it's an heightened level of faith. It's, probably, it's a level of faith I don't have. I can never have it. It takes a, if I, it takes a lot more faith to believe that there's no God than to believe that there's God, actually. It takes a lot more faith to believe that the earth is suspended in space. <laughs> it's suspended in space by nothing. I hope you know that there's no, if you look at the picture of space, there's nothing under the earth. There's no or anything around the earth. The earth is just there by itself and it's just revolving around the sun. And then as it's revolving around the sun, it's also rotating on its own axis. And like, I don't, like, if you think about it, you should be scared. Like, just wake up one day and just think about the fact that we live, we, we live on a globe that is rolling around. Not just, it's not just, it's not just rotating on one axis. It's rotating and revolving. So it's rotating and then it's going around. It should really scare you, actually. It should. It should. Do you understand? But then, that's by the way. But then look at what, look at what Paul is saying. So he talks about the Gentile and then he says that, listen, that, so for the Gentile, you don't have any excuse because you can know about God from the, in, from the visible things of the world. And in fact, he says that, you know, your conscience is alone to you. So he tells you that from the things that you see and from the way you interact with people in the world, your conscience bears you witness that there is a God. And so acting against your conscience is enough judgment, is judgment against you. So he says that about the Gentile. And then he begins to go to the Jew, all right? And then he's trying to talk to the Jew and say that for the Jew, 
at least your, your own case is even worse because you are the law. You have the law. And then he says that if a Gentile who does not have the law does the things that are written in the law, because I hope you realize, and I said, and I said this in, in Lagos, that I hope you realize that the point of the law was not to show you good or bad. That couldn't have been the point of the law. The point of the law could not have been to show you good or bad because people knew what was good or bad before the law was given. A very good example. Cain knew that it was wrong to kill Abel before the law was given. Cain knew that it was wrong to kill Abel, unless you think that it was because somebody taught him. Nobody had been killed before then. So how did Cain know that killing Abel was wrong? So much so that when God said, what have you done, or where's your brother, that he knew that you know what he had done was bad, and he had to go into self-defense and start saying, am I my brother's keeper? He knew, he knew it was bad, yet the law had not been given. Joseph, for example, knew that sleeping Potiphar's wife was wrong, and there was no law. Yet he said, how will I do this great sin against God and against my master? So he knew that what he, he knew that him sleeping Potiphar's wife would have been a wrong thing, yet there was no law given yet. What does that let you know? So now, let me now say something. That would now also let you know what Paul was actually saying about the Gentiles and their conscience being a judgment unto them. Because even for the Gentile, all right, he already knew. So, because at that point in time, for someone like Joseph, in a sense, you can liken Joseph to a Gentile because the law was not given, was not given to him. So, in his now, I just said in a sense, permits that loose phraseology of the word. Or right? I'm not saying that Joseph was a Gentile. I'm just saying, in a context, in the sense of that no law was given to him, he falls within the purview of a Gentile there. And so, for someone like Joseph, for instance, it will show you how the Gentile, despite the fact that there is no law, can know what is right or what is wrong. And the Gentile can know that he has sinned, despite the fact that he has no law given to him. Are we together, guys? So, so he's saying that, so for the Jew, for example, he's telling them that, you know, what exactly is the beautiful thing about you? If after you were given the laws, at least let's even say for the Gentiles, they were not given any law. You were given the law. And so he says that if the Gentiles who do not have any law given to them do by nature the works of the law, are they not better than you who have the law? So in Romans 2, in fact, it was almost like as though he was hacking the Jews. He came for their head. And so by the time he was done talking about that, he knew that somebody would begin to say, ah, you know, so what's not the whole point of the Jews? So he goes in Romans chapter 3, and I don't think that's just give you an introduction into this chapter. So in Romans 3, he now says, what advantage then has the Jew? Do you understand? Like, having, having seen the fact that even the Gentiles who do not have the works of the law seem to be acting better than the Jews, in fact, who have the law. He then says, what advantage then has the Jew? He says, or oh, what profit is there of circumcision? Do you understand? So at the end of the day, what's the point of being a Jew? Do you understand? What's the point? Or what profit is there of circumcision? He says, much in every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. So it was specific. So it was the Jews that the oracles of God were committed. By the oracles of God, he was referring to the laws, the laws of Moses. Are we together, guys? So he says that unto the Jews were the oracles of God given, not to everyone. Not to everyone, to the Jews specifically. So the Gentiles did not have the oracles of God given unto them. The Gentiles did not have the law. That's the reason why it is an anomaly for a person in Nigeria to want to follow the law. It was not given to you. It wasn't. It was never given to you. So the reason the law does not apply to us today is not even because of the sacrifice of Christ, even though that matters a lot. The reason the law doesn't apply to you is because you're, you're a Nigerian. Or at least because you're not an Israelite. Simple. That's, that's it. So as long as you're not an Israelite, you have nothing to do with the law. And so, now pay attention to this. If you have nothing to do with the law because you're a Gentile, then you also have nothing to do with the cause of the law. I'm going to say that again. If you have nothing to do with the law, then you also have nothing to do with the cause of the law. Because one thing we know about the cause of the law is this, that the, the cause of the law is only for those who are under the law. So for example, you see in Galatians 3 from verse 10, it says, for as many as of the works of the law are under the cause. So the people who are under the cause of the law are those who are on are those who are under the law. So if you are not under the law, you have nothing to do with the cause of the law. It's that simple. Because it can be nice, of course, when you're talking about the fact that oh, Christ is you know Christ has redeemed us from the cause of the law, being made a cause for us, for it is written, cause is everyone who is hung on the tree. That's nice, but it doesn't apply to you. Now, is this me saying that the work of redemption had no um, the work of redemption had no import or importance for you? Of course, I won't say that. We're still going to get there. But the reality of it is that the dying of the cross or the death, I hope you realize in fact, let me say this, I hope you realize in fact that to die on the cross is actually a punishment from the law. It is. It's a punishment from the law. It's a punishment for a blasphemer. 
on ardent criminal. It is from the law. So in fact, the fact that Roman soldiers beat up Jesus, made him go through the things that he went through, and put him up on the cross, where they, they were doing things that were of the law. A Gentile would not have done that. A Gentile would probably their punishment would have just been beat him up or something like that. But the fact that it was the fact that it was particularly that he was hung upon the cross was actually in response or better still, them obeying the Jewish laws. Do you understand me? That's what was going on there. So what Jesus did there as by him dying on the cross bears its significance primarily to the Jew. Not that now, notice I've not said that the work of salvation doesn't bear any significance to the Gentile, but that Jesus' death on the cross bears its significance to the Jew because the Jew recognizes that that death on the cross is actually a punishment for a Jewish criminal. And that's what was happening with Jesus here. So Jesus dying on the cross clearly was because, now, of course, very simply, he was made cause. So Bible says, for example, in Deuteronomy, it's actually an Old Testament scripture. I think Deuteronomy 21 verse 23. I'm not so sure about that. I'll check that. I'm just, Deuteronomy 21, 23, I think so. All right. So it, it says that cause is everyone who is hung on a tree. So now Jesus, who, by the way, was not a sinner, is now hung on a tree. And then he is the cause. Or better still, it takes upon him the cause of the law. Are we together, guys? Takes upon him, so it takes upon him the punishment of the law. By him doing that, he has just taken the punishment for anyone who believes in him of the cause of the law or of the laws. Are we together, guys? And having seen that the primary differentiator between the Jew and the Gentile is the law, by him taking away that law or paying for the or paying the sacrifice for that law, what he had just done there is to remove the separative factor between Jew and Gentile so that he could now make propitiation for their sins unto God as a people. So that was the point of him dying on the cross. He died on the cross so that the separating factor between the Jew and the Gentile, in fact, would be removed. And so all of them would now be the same before God. So now, whether Jew or Gentile, and that's the reason when we say, for example, where there's neither Jew nor Gentile, there's neither slave nor free, so on and so forth. We're not just saying nice things. We're saying it because it's actually true. Because what part of the work of Jesus in his death and resurrection was, it was that he removed the separating factor, all right, or the factor that separated Jews from the Gentiles. He removed it. And so having removed it, he could now offer sacrifice to God for a people. So now, whether Jew or Gentile, all that matters now is that you are sinners, simple. And now one sacrifice is now made for all of you. So you must understand the import of these things. So that's the reason why he now goes. Now look at Colossians 2 verse 14. Go there. Colossians 2 verse 14. Colossians 2 verse 14. It says, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. Can you see that? Now, when you see the word ordinances in scripture, particularly in the book of Colossians, all right, because in that same Colossians, he had used ordinances in a couple of places. All right, the word ordinances there is oftentimes used for the laws. All right, ordinances, commandments. All right, so he was saying that he blotted out the handwriting of ordinances. So pay attention to the word handwriting. What does that give you a perspective to? The law, the book of Moses. All right, sorry, the book of the law, the law of Moses. Because these things were written out. I hope you know that there's a between the Ten Commandments. And hopefully, I don't even know when I was, I'm going to be able to show this anyways. Um, there's a between the Ten Commandments and the book of the law. The Ten Commandments were, was engraved in two tablets of stone and was put into the Ark of the Covenant. But the book of the law, which was written by hand, of the, the laws that Moses gave, that was put beside the Ark of the Covenant. Are we together, guys? So now, that being said, so when he says blotting out the handwriting of ordinances, he's talking about the book of the law, the writing, the commandments that were written. He says blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. So the significance of the cross is that the handwriting of ordinances have been done away with. Glory to Jesus. It's been done away with. So now, when we look to the cross, what we see is not the finality of the work of salvation. That's not what we see on the cross. When we look to the cross, what we see is an end of the law. Hallelujah. What we see is that all of the, all of the requirements of the law have been fulfilled upon the cross. So you must be clear. So the, 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 the fulfillment of salvation is not the cross. No, no, no. Actually, it's not. Actually, it's not. In fact, the cross is the beginning. <laughs> the cross is the beginning. It's not a fulfillment. Actually, because let me tell you something. If Jesus had died on the cross, eh, if he had died and that was the end, he bears no significance to you. In fact, here's the interesting thing. If he had died on the cross, even the Jew would not have been able to partake. They wouldn't have. 
because it is not in, until the resurrection and I, I'm, I'm running i'm running ahead of myself now but please just permit me it is not until the resurrection that there is the giving of the holy ghost by which a man can now identify with the work of salvation so if you don't receive the holy ghost i hope you realize that the reason we can say that jesus died and we are dead too is because we have the holy ghost that he gave in his resurrection so because he gave the holy ghost as a reason of his death burial, and resurrection by you receiving that holy ghost it's as though you were also a part of the death prepare and resurrection or it's as though you were the one who actually died was buried and rose again hallelujah so if of a true jesus actually just died on the cross and that was the end you understand the fulfillment the way we always talk about the cross you know, because there's a way for example we like to talk about the cross you know when it when it when it comes to the work of jesus you know just about the cross and other times it's because to be fair we are emotional which is okay it's fine there was a lot he went through it wasn't easy but it worth it stuff like that in fact let me say something by the way which i think it bears mentioning a lot do you realize that jesus that the most terrible thing about the work of salvation that jesus went through wasn't the cross it was going to hell i don't think people realize how terrible that that is shall. because you can, you can you can so for example when when by when paul sorry not paul now when jesus in luke 24 when he says, Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory, beginning of Moses and all the prophets, he expanded to them in all scriptures, things concerning himself. Where he speaks about the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. A lot of times we think the suffering of Christ when we refer to there was the, was the suffering that the Roman soldiers put him through. No. 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 The suffering of Christ is that he went to hell. I'm going to show you that very soon. Do you know what that means? That God came as a man and then he went to the place of the dead. In case you don't realize, when peter was going to speak about christ he says you are christ the son of the living god and according to roman custom for you to be called the son of someone all right it actually means that literally you bear the same authority as the person because that's the same thing that's the reason they wanted to kill him in john 5 verse 18. john 5 verse 18. they says that he said that he called himself a son of god or he called god his father meaning that he was equal with god so the romans understood that sonship for example means that i bear the same authority as this person so imagine that god is up god comes as a man upon the earth and then dies and goes to hell ah so i promise you what the roman soldiers did to him that's a lot better that's a lot better because you see the problem is this when it comes to the work of salvation we got we get a lot more emotional and sentimental than scriptural or at least than revelational from the eyes of revelation eh the greatest the, the, no of course he didn't go through a defeat but the greatest pain that that jesus went through was the fact that he became sick that's it it's not that he died on the cross it can't have been it's rather the fact that he became sick he went to hell i'm going to show you that very soon but that's by the way but what i'm just trying to explain to you is the fact that jesus's death upon the cross was not for the gentiles it's for the jew all right and it's to what end that um that the law which is the differentiating factor between the Jew and the Gentile no longer stands now because the cost or whereas still the price of the law has been fully paid for. Hallelujah. Glory to Jesus. So now go, go to Ephesians 2 11 to 16. Ephesians 2 11 to 16. Glory, 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 glory to God. Ephesians 2 from verse 11 to verse 16. He says, Wherefore remember that you being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called on circumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hand. He says that at that time you were without Christ. Being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope but without God in this world. And look at what he says. He says in verse um, 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were foul have been made nigh by the blood of Christ. Hallelujah. And then he doesn't continue there. Look at what he says in verse 14. So he says, let me start from that verse 11. He says, then you were called on circumcision by this by those who are of the circumcision that was made by hand and who is he referring to the jews do not forget for example when david stood in front of in front of goliath who was a philistine notice that i, I cannot every time when i think about it i can't get over it the fact that david saw goliath up to down he saw a beast in front of him a giant a man who was so big and so enormous and the only thing that mattered to david in the estimation of goliath was just one thing you are uncircumcised so he looks at he looks at the man and then he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that gets to defy the armies of the living God? Meaning, as tall as Goliath was, as big as he was, as broad-shouldered as he was, the fact that he had so many toes, so many um, this thing, so many fingers did not matter to him. All that mattered to him was the fact that you are uncircumcised. So as long as you are uncircumcised and you are standing against a man who is circumcised, you are done for. 
<laughs> you are finished. Do you understand my point? So all that the Jews saw the Gentile as was an uncircumcised person. This is, and it's not even uncircumcised in the, in the way of hell. It's actually uncircumcised. So what that means is that you have no covenant with God. I wish to get that. So that's the reason why Paul was saying in Ephesians 2 that at that time you were without Christ. You were aliens from the, from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. That was how the Jews saw the Gentiles. I wish you get that. But then he says in verse 13, he says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were far off have been brought nigh by the blood of Christ. He then goes on to verse 14 to begin to explain to you how that happened. He says, For it is our peace. Who has made both one? Who are the both Jews and Gentiles? He has made the Jews and the Gentiles one. And he has broken down the middle wall of partition. What is the middle wall of partition? The law. The law, the law was what separated the Jew from the Gentile. So he says he has made both the Jew and the Gentile one. And how did he do that? He has broken down the middle wall of partition. How? Having abolished in his flesh the enmity. That is the law of commandment contained in canon ordinances. Can you see ordinances? Like what I showed you in Colossians 2 and verse 14. He says he, had, he has abolished in his flesh the enmity. That is the law of commandments. Can, can we see? So what he did, to remove the separation factor between the Jew and the Gentiles was that he abolished the enmity, which is the law of, of commandments contained in canal, um, sorry, in canal ordinances. So by him taking away the law, all right, he removed the middle wall of partition such that the Jew and the Gentile can now approach God as one. So now there's no separation factor anymore. So now we are both sinners. There's no better sinner. Both of us are sinners. <laughs> Do you understand me? That, so in fact, when Paul said in Romans 3 and verse 23, for all have sinned and conscious of the glory of God, we think what he's talking about there is for all have sinned, all have lied, all have stolen, all have done this, all have done that. No. The real content of Romans 3 and verse 23 is this. The Jew have sinned according to the law. The Gentiles have sinned without the law. So now, all have sinned and conscious of the glory of God. So whether Jew or Gentile, all have sinned. That was the real context of Romans 3 and verse 23. So that's also what you are seeing here. So it says he abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain, twain means two, for to make in himself of two, one new man, so bringing peace, and that he must reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. So when we see the cross, what do we see? We see the work of Jesus to remove the separation between the Jew and the Gentile. Hallelujah. So when Jesus was upon the cross in John 19 and verse 30 and says, it is finished. Is Jesus saying the work of redemption has been finished? Of course not. <laughs> he can't have said that. It is finished means the price for the, for the cost of the law has been paid. So now, as a reason of this sacrifice, there is therefore now no cost anymore under the law. The price, the full price for the law has totally been paid for. Hallelujah. Glory to Jesus. That's what he's talking about there. So when you see the cross next time, don't just get too excited and think, oh, you know, you know, for the cross I bow my knee, where your blood was shed for me. By the way, that's another conversation to have. All right. And I talk about this in Lagos. I'm still going to teach about it here a bit more. The fact that the blood was not shed on the cross. Was there blood on the cross? Yes. But was the blood for sin shed on the cross? No. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. Even in the Old Testament, eh, the blood. Yeah, no, and I actually before I even began to teach very clearly, before I even tried to show them clearly from scripture, I just use this simple analogy for them. Listen, in the old testament, all right. I hope you realize, for example, that when they do when they try to do an atonement, okay, the place where the blood is shed for sin is in the holiest of all. The animal is killed in the outer court, but that there is blood in the of course we won't kill an animal and it will be meat. There will be blood there. Jonathan, there will be blood there. But that blood was spilled in the outer court does not mean that because of that, the, the sacrifice of sins has been paid. No. The, the, even though blood is spilled, the high priest now has to take that blood, all right, take blood and go and shed it upon the messages in the earliest of all. It is not until then that the price for sins has been paid, that the blood has then been shed for sins. So that's why the fact that Jesus could have died on the cross, you will be wrong to think that the sacrifice for sins was paid on the cross. No, just as an animal was killed in the other court, and of the truth, blood was spilled in the other court. But we won't say that the blood has already been shed because blood was spilled. No, the blood does not become shed for sins, specifically for sins. The blood does not become shed for sins until it is sprinkled upon the messages in the earliest of all. So, same with same with Jesus, you won't see him die on the cross, and because blood came out. Then you say, oh, you know, 
the the uh, the sacrifice of sins has been paid. No, you'll be wrong to say that. Very wrong, as a matter of fact. The sacrifice of sins was not paid until when Jesus rose up, all right, and was ascended to the right hand of the Father. So that's by the way. Okay, so when we look to the cross, what do we see? We see the cost of the Lord taken away for the for the um, Jew. And what import or importance does this have to the Gentiles? The fact that Christ could now pay for the sacrifice of the sins of the Jew and the Gentile as one. Hallelujah. So now the, the Gentile no longer has to look at the Jew with a sense of inferiority complex. No longer. Are we together? In, as a reason of the work of the cross, circumcision and non-circumcision does not profit anything anymore. Hallelujah. Now, but this circumcision, not to be clear, the circumcision I've spoken about here is not the medical circumcision that you do in the hospital. That's not it. This is a ritual of circumcision that was ordained by Abraham. The covenant that was ordained to Abraham that was then continued by Moses in the law is what we are speaking about here. So listen, no longer in Christ Jesus do we have an inferiority complex of the Gentile to the Jew because the Gentile is not circumcised. Because listen, as a, work, as a result of the work of the cross, the Jew and the Gentile have now become one. That's the reason why we can say, according to Galatians 3 and verse 28, that there is therefore now no Jew or Gentile. There is therefore now no slave nor free. Hallelujah. Why? Because in Christ Jesus, as the reason of his work on the cross, that separation between the Jew and Gentile has been taken away. The work of the law, better still, the, the law of commandments contained in carnal ordinances has been taken away, has been abolished in his flesh. Hallelujah. Glory to Jesus. Amen. Amen. Praise God. So let's move on from there. Let's move on from there. So we see already that Jesus Christ died on the cross. Hallelujah. Died on the cross as taking away the separation between the Jew and the Gentile. But that's not all. That's not all. He didn't just die on the cross. Hallelujah. He didn't just die on the cross. And you see, let me also say this, that you see, you would be wrong to see the, what's the word now? You'll be wrong to see the events of the gospel that the dead, burial, resurrection only within the context of the physical event. Oh, he, was, he died on the cross. Oh, he was buried in a tomb. Oh, he was raised out of a tomb. No. There were supernatural or spiritual, um, spiritual, there was a spiritual significance of all of those things you saw. So, for example, Jesus Christ dying on the cross wasn't just the fact that he was a criminal according to Jewish standards. No. But rather the fact that he took upon him, all right, the sin of the world. I wish you get that guy. So, both from a physical perspective, he was a sinner according to the Jewish laws, but then spiritually as well, he became a sinner, or better still, he became sin for those who were under sin. So, now you see in 2 Corinthians 5 from verse 21, for example, 2 Corinthians 5 from verse 21, he says, For he became sin for us. Oh, sorry, for he was made sin for us. Look at that. Let's go there. 2 Corinthians 5 from verse 21. 2 Corinthians 5 from verse 21. He says, for he hath made him, so he has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So he made him to be sin. So he wasn't initially sin. He was made to be it. So he made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Hallelujah. So he didn't know any sin. There was nothing found in him. He said the same thing in John 14 and verse 13. He says, the prince of this world has come unto me, and he has found nothing in me. So there was nothing in him that was worthy of him being called the sinner. Yet, he became sin for us. Who knew no sin? So he knew no sin. He became sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. So when we look to the cross or when we look to the death, our understanding of the death is not just in the physical nature of the death, but in the spiritual nature of the death. Hallelujah. That he not only went to the cross as a Jewish sinner, he died spiritually. Are we together? As a sinner. I'm going to say that again. He did not just in in he did not just in terms of the physical view of things die on the cross as a Jewish sinner. Spiritually, he took upon him the nature of sin. Hence, died as a man in sin spiritually. Because let me tell you something. You know that. Oh, you know that if Jesus had just died, that he just died, Sha, it wouldn't have mattered much. Let me explain what I'm trying to say. If Jesus just died, that okay, no problem. That like he died as per false accusation. I'm actually not a sinner. I actually not do anything wrong, but I shall die shall based on the Jewish laws. But that he did not receive upon him the nature of sin. He could not have possibly done it for us. Because the issue with us before wasn't that people were not dying. People were dying. Do you understand my point? Whether with the law or without the law, people were dying. People had been wrongly killed before Jesus. So if Jesus just died as per false accusation, 
but he did not take upon him the nature of sin. It wouldn't have mattered much. He would have just died and he would have he would have been risen from the dead, but it would not have an effect in the hearts of the sinner. You know, the reason why, pay attention to this now, the reason why the sinners today can benefit from what Jesus did is that Jesus not only died, but he took upon him the nature of the sinner. Are we together, guys? So he died as a sinner. He died with the significance. You know what makes a sinner a sinner? It's not just what he does. It is the nature within him. Don't forget Romans chapter 5 from the spirit. For by one man sin entered the world and death by sinner. So death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. So what makes a sinner a sinner is not just that he did something wrong. No. It is that he has a nature within him that makes him act a certain way. Are we together, guys? So for Jesus to have done a work that would atone for the sin of the sinner, he had to be made like so he had to be made like unto a sinner. So if all you see in the work of salvation is just a physical event that he died on the cross, and you don't see that there had to be a supernatural side to it or a spiritual side to it, where Jesus not only dies on the cross as a Jewish sinner, but takes upon him a nature as a sinner. The, the, the significance of that or the mistake you'll be making is that if you see the event as purely physical, then everything that Jesus would have done would have been physical. That's all. But for you to have had a supernatural or spiritual significance, it also had to carry supernatural or spiritual significance in himself. So such that as he was dying on the cross as a Jewish sinner, in the realm of the spirit, he became a sinner for the sins of man. I wish you get that guy. Such that he could die the way a sinner actually dies, both as a sinner in the body and as a sinner by the spirit. Ah. I wish you get that guy. So when you look to the events of the gospel, you must not just see spirit, uh, physical events. You must see physical and spiritual events because both of them have a significance. Ah, do I want to say this right now? And I, I really hope I do. I just have very few minutes. But I'm going to say this as we go. You know, when you look to the resurrection, your understanding of the resurrection must not just be that Jesus stood out of the tree. It must be that Jesus left hell into heaven. Those two things are important. Why did I say so? I said so because, as I've shown you before, a man who is under the dominion of the devil, or who is under the dominion of sin, even though he's on the earth, he's in hell. Are we together, guys? And that's where I came up, where I brought up the phrase, the man from two worlds. Where I spoke about the fact that, just as Paul said, even though you're on the earth, he says your citizenship is in heaven. So meaning you're on the earth, but by the spirit you are in heaven. I wish you get that guy. So when you view anything that has to do with man, your perspective towards man must always be from two planes, the physical and the spiritual. I wish you get that guy. So I said that to say that when you evaluate any man, whether believer or believer, you must always see physical, spiritual. So for the believer, for example, you see physical on the earth spiritual in heaven for the unbeliever or the man who is in sin or the man who is under the word of the devil physical on the earth spiritual in hell are we together guys so when you bring this to jesus do not forget that jesus had to be made made like the sinner in order to be able to make a sacrifice for the sinner so that the sinner would now be made like the way jesus would be upon the resurrection i really hope i'm not confusing you i'm going to say that again jesus had to be made like unto the sinner to atone for the sin of the sinner to the end that the sinner would now be made like unto Jesus in Jesus' resurrection. So, so pay attention now. In your estimation of the death, the burial, resurrection, if your understanding of death, the burial, resurrection is just Jesus died, he was buried in the tomb of a rich man, and then he was, and then he rose out of the tomb, nice, and then he ascended to the sky, nice. But your understanding of that particular event in the eyes of the spirit must be this. Not just that Jesus died on the cross, but that Jesus took upon him the nature of a sinner. That is very important. And that he went to hell as a sinner. And that he rose out of hell into heaven. Those events, those spiritual events, bear a significance. So because of those things he did in the spirit, that is the reason we can say today that the believer, are we together? Even though he is on the earth, hey. Even though the believer is upon the earth, we can say that the believer today is in heaven. Why? Because the man Jesus not only went through the physical motions of the dead, the burial, resurrection, he went through the spiritual motions as well. So the dead, the burial, resurrection not only bears a physical importance in the fact that man will still be raised from the dead even after he died, but it bears a spiritual significance in the sense that even though man is on the earth physically, by the spirit he is in heaven. Are we together, guys? Are we together, guys? 
something to get your mind thinking as we round up. If we now understand that the resurrection of Jesus was not just the fact that he came out of the tomb, but that he stepped out of hell into heaven. Hey, I'm not going to say this. Because if I say it, it can scatter a lot of things. So I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to say this. When we estimate, because here's the problem. And interestingly, funny enough, this was the total coincidence. Next week is Easter. Like the next weekend is Easter. I, I didn't plan. I actually didn't plan it. Actually, I did not. Right. You know, when we look to Easter, we're very quick to just talk about the physical event. Oh, the death of Jesus. Oh, the suffering. And we think the suffering that you were beating him with whips. You really think, <laughs> genuinely, you think that's what scared Jesus? The beating with whips. You think that was what scared him? You think that's it? Or that he is upon the cross and then he shouts, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I ask yourself this question Why was it on, on the cross he shouted it and not when he was being beaten? Why? <laughs> because, listen, there was a lot more that he lost on the cross than he lost when he was. You think it's the beating that, you really think it's the beating that made this man go through? The real suffering was that a man, a man that had only existed within the plane of deity, was about to enter into hell. That's the suffering. So, as we estimate the work of redemption, we must not just see it within the lens of a man dies physically, is buried physically, and he is raised from the dead physically. No, we must see it within the lens of the spirit that a man receives upon himself the nature of sin as a sinner. He goes to hell. And then it is raised from hell into heaven with eternal life, according to the power of an endless life. Hallelujah. And then as he's raised to heaven, he's seated upon the seat of glory once forever. Hallelujah. And therefore, in that we have confidence that our sacrifice is forever. And that our high priest is powered after the power of an endless life. Never to die again. Hence, there is no need for yearly sacrifices. Hence, there is no need once again for any more sacrifice. Hallelujah. For he's able to save to the uttermost them which come unto God through him. Hallelujah. Glory to Jesus. My sacrifice is forever. Hey, hey. My sacrifice is forever. You know, when we say, you know, it's the phrase I always use a lot of times. I say, the, sa- the Savior is competent. Uh, you know what I say? I say, uh, I think that, yeah, the Savior is competent. His sacrifice is perfect. The saved must be confident. He shall never perish. Is the fact. It's not, it's not just rhyming words. It's the truth. The Savior is actually competent. He has proved himself competent. Little wonder it says, I am he who was dead, yet alive. And I have the keys of death and hell. Ah! He went there. He went into the very abyss of death and the very abyss of hell. The place where the devil seemed to reign supreme. And he came out victorious. Little wonder it says, he made an open show of the devil. Ah! Because he went into his stronghold. He went into where he was, he was calling himself king and lord. And gave him a knockout there. And rose out of hell into glory. So having been raised from hell, that is the big fear about the devil. Some people think that what Jesus went to do in hell is that he went to meet, he went to meet the devil and he was saying, if they burn you away, you give me one punch. I'll, if you give me one, I'll give you seven. You think that's what Jesus did? No. Rather, the simple fact that a man could enter hell and come out already shows that death and hell does not have to be the end of a man. By him doing that, he just took the keys of death and hell. He took the authority of death and hell from the devil. By the simple fact that he went there and he came out, you already took the authority from the devil. So that is the confidence we have today. That listen, there is no guilt in life, no fear in death. You know why? Because death is not my end. You know, there's something that, that was said. You know, I saw I saw Black Panther too during the during the week. And and one thing that one phrase that they say is this in our culture, death is never the end. Listen to me. In the new creation, death is not the end. You know why? Because in Jesus, we know that a man can die and be raised again. That's our confidence. Hallelujah. Glory to Jesus. Praise God. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the work of redemption. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the work of redemption. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the work of redemption. You know, you know the big, you know the most beautiful thing, all right, about the work of redemption. It is how extremely brilliant the work is. It is it is a masterpiece. Do you understand? If somebody were to sit down to make a movie out of it, all right, and actually study and analyze the work of redemption, both the physical and the spiritual events. And to craft it into a movie and put it out, it's a blockbuster. It, it is too prophetically consistent. Do you understand my point? Every single detail that needed to be fixed was fixed. Everything. Every single thing that needed to be cleared out was cleared out. You know that? By the time Jesus finished work, there was no space for the devil to give. Do you understand? There was nothing that the devil could hold on to anymore. He finished the work in its entirety. Ah! 
that is the meaning of Abanilabako. He saves with your taboo. You know, when we hear Abanilabako, we think that what he's talking about is, ah, you know, maybe uh, I was supposed to fall into accident, then God now saved me from the accident. That's fine. But listen, the true Abanilabako is that he saves a man to the uttermost. Don't you get it? It is to the uttermost. Uttermost. That's the reason Jesus could say in John 3, verse 16, whosoever. Meaning, there won't be a point in time where there'll be a person where you'll still be too great that, ah, we look at it and say, oh, more, ah, Jesus, Jesus prayed for all. Lord, oh, more, ah, see what he lay. Ah, no, 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 come on. Ah, we didn't plan for something like this before. Oh, they didn't, don't be annoyed. And Jesus' sin, Jesus' work of redemption can atone for everybody, but ah, this your sin is serious. Uh, we are really sorry. We can't do anything about it right now. Maybe we contact us by tomorrow, Matthew, you're great. No, that's not it. Listen to me. He is able to save to the other. Then which come to God through him is ah, is able to save to the other. Almost to end, end. That's my confidence. Hallelujah. That's my confidence. So this is. Let me tell you something. When you understand the work of redemption, you understand how. I'm going to use the word. How stupid it is to think that a man by himself, a man by based on how good he is, can make himself right before God. Listen, you can't be so nice enough as to be able to equate your niceness in the flesh to the power of the resurrection, to the power of what Jesus did in redemption. It is, it is folly to bring both of them together. It is folly. No matter how nice you are, no matter the, the depth of goodness you can perceive yourself to have as a man, it cannot come close to that which Jesus did in the work of redemption. It can't. So it becomes an insult to the work of redemption to think a man can be saved by works. It's an insult. Holy work. Hallelujah. For there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made us free from the law of sin and death. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Hey. Thank you, Lord Jesus. In you, I'm justified. In you, I'm sanctified. In you, I'm seated once forever. I'm seated in the place of authority, far above principalities and power. Thank you, Lord Jesus. I've not been made your righteousness. Ah, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Ah, he has made us peculiar people zealous for good works. Oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Oh, thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you for listening. We're sure that it was an amazing time. For questions and inquiries, reach out to us on carisol.media at gmail.com. We call you blessed.